And uh, you know, it's possible to just take lists and go, yeah, did that, did that, did that. But um, the Sermon of the Mount, we trust in God as we go through it, that it brings about an undercurrent of love in our lives. That changes the way we treat people, the way we live. And then after Jesus saying that, for the rest of Matthew 5, he speaks about six different ways that his righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees. And today we look at the first one. So here we go, Matthew 5 is 21 to 26. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, it's quoting Moses, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, rock up, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering a gift at the altar, and they remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary, who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. So the first way of Jesus is eliminate anger and contempt. Eliminate anger and contempt. Jesus calls us to so much more in our relationships than merely avoiding murder. He calls us to avoid the root of murder. Ungodly anger, contempt, insults. Interestingly, the Lord Moses had nothing to say about this heart-level righteousness. Moses addressed the behavior of murder. Jesus goes after the heart attitude behind murder. So let's look at anger firstly. Jesus says, anyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. I mean, this runs through the scriptures. James, the brother of Jesus, says in James 1, everyone should be slow to become angry because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. When you've got that feeling of anger, and you're like, and you feel so right. Yeah, you might have strong feelings of being right, but there is often a root of self-righteousness in it <laughs> that is actually meaning whatever you do now is making it worse, not better. Jesus is not saying all anger is sin. I mean, in Ephesians 4, Paul says, in your anger do not sin. So it's possible for there to be a kind of anger that's not sin, but if you aren't careful, it quickly morphs into sin. I remember going to uh, therapy a few years ago, and for the first time in my life, experiencing daily feelings of anger. Never struggled with anger in my life before. And uh, the therapist says, no, she sees it a lot in men once they cross over the age of 40. Sadness morphs into anger in an older man's heart. I don't know if that's statistically verified, but I was like, I'm feeling something that I haven't felt before. Sometimes anger actually it, it masks deep feelings like sadness, like powerlessness. Jesus, I warns us against sinful anger. I mean, sometimes we're frustrated with someone because they get in the way of what we want. In Esther chapter 1, you've got um, Xerxes the king, and he's showing off and he calls for his wife, Vashti, to come and do a little bit of a runway walk to show how hot she is to everyone. She refuses, and he is so filled with anger, we're told, because his pride has been wounded. See, there's an anger that comes from a wounded pride. 
Sometimes we're confusing justice with wounded pride. I mean, Jesus was angered with a righteous anger when powerful people exploited and damaged weak people. <clears throat> but we've got to be careful in our own hearts because what we might feel is, in, you know, incensed against injustice. It's one thing when we see a person who is unjust to another and you feel a righteous sense of indignation. But when you're the recipient of the injustice, what tends to happen is it mixes up with wounded pride. <laughs> so not all of your feelings of anger are legitimate, even if there is something in there. Sometimes it's an anger that's connected to jealousy. We're jealous of another person. Cain kills Abel because he's jealous. These, the sinful kind of anger is usually associated with other feelings, like hatred, irritation, animosity, bitterness, offense. Jesus tells us that God will judge this kind of anger. There's two Greek words for anger in the New Testament. Thumos, which is the quick flare-up of anger. And that's why we need to we need self-control at times when anger flares up inside of us and we've got to be careful what we say and do next. Then you get another kind of anger called Augustai, which is a brooded over anger. This is the slow, simmering anger. And uh, I think in, if you've lived long enough, you might know those two feelings. Yeah. The slow, brooded over anger. Sometimes we actually throw the coals of bitterness into that kind of anger. It yeah. gives us an energy. And if it stays in us long enough, we actually don't know how to stop it. It becomes part of us. We literally can be a sweet person for 20 years of our lives and then turn into a bitter, angry person. <laughs> it happens to a lot of people. So that's anger. Then you get contempt. Jesus says, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. The word Raka was an Aramaic word that expressed contempt for someone. To say Raka is to say to someone, you're worthless, you're beneath me. It's almost like Raka. It's like, like, a, like a spitting sound. You see, when you're angry with someone, you can still affirm that person's worth. Contempt is different because now you begin to deny that person's worth. Contempt, anger says, I'm so angry with this person for what they've done. Contempt says, I'm better than the person who did this. And then to justify the illusion that I'm better, we have to write off not only the person's behavior, but the person themselves. We attack their character. This is because they're this kind of person. And we tend to, in our minds, highlight all of their weaknesses and to get all of their strengths. And we do the opposite in ourselves. And we look down our nose at them. Contempt. Jesus warns us against both. Anger and contempt. Thinking about contempt, have you noticed in the last five years how contempt has become part of society in a way that it wasn't before? See, ideologically polarized society is based on contempt for the other. In In society today, I'm quoting John Tyson, contempt is causing us to dismiss entire segments of society and it's destroying the social fabric of our lives. Contempt doesn't just cause marital divorce, it's fracturing long-held friendships, workplaces, and parental and sibling relationships. We see the widening of ideological fault lines that continue to fragment society. And what I find so tragic is that so many followers of Jesus contribute to this demonizing of other groups of people. I mean, Satan's effort to cause followers of Jesus to hold others in contempt causes us to withdraw into ever smaller circles of sameness and we shrink our ability to serve and reach many of the people God intended our lives to touch 
and to bless. I know followers of Jesus who have been, who have literally broken up with friendships because they disagreed, disagreed on, you know, vaccines and masks. What the heck? Five years ago, could you have, could you have imagined this even happening? This anger, this contempt, it leaks from our mouth, says Jesus. Anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. See, words can be so destructive when coming from a bitterly angry or a coldly contemptuous attitude. <coughs> what does it mean to be in the danger of the fire of hell? We're not meant to imagine Dante's Inferno. The, the Greek word there is Gehenna or Gehenna. And it refers to a valley to the south of Jerusalem where uh, there was constant burning of refuge and, 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 and rubbish. Is Jesus being literal? Is he threatening eternal judgment for the disciple that can't get on top of his anger and his contempt? Or is he saying maybe that uh, you, you're not going to lose your salvation, but you're going to experience God's you know, purifying punishment? Well, if it is literal, I personally would land with it uh, being God's purifying punishment. Because, uh, you know, so many followers of Jesus I know haven't perfected their overcoming anger and contempt. And uh, if all of us are going to help, it does cause us to question how, you know, solid the work of Jesus was in forgiving our sins. <laughs> My own understanding is that this refers to God's purifying punishment. If our lives are not conformed to Jesus, one day when we see him face to face, there will be a burning away. There will be a judgment on those parts of our lives that are incompatible with him. Maybe Jesus is being figurative here. He's saying that anger and contempt turns our lives into a relational wasteland. Jesus' point is that there's nothing cute about sinful anger and contempt. Hell on earth comes from it. I mean, what is back behind all of the wars... All of the genocides, all of the people killing and destroying each other. Anger, simple anger and contempt. Jesus says eliminate anger and contempt. He's going for the root behind murder. You know, an angry and contemptuous person, one in a thousand will commit murder. But the rest of us will commit murder in our hearts. Jesus is pulling it out by the roots. So that's the first way of Jesus. Eliminate anger and contempt. And then secondly, protect and restore relationships. Protect and restore relationships. Uh, I think it was Dave who preached on Blessed are the Peacemakers. Or was it Jesse, Dave? I can't remember. It was you, huh? Well, Jesus gives two scenarios that flesh out his teaching about how anger and contempt and insult damages relationships, but we need to get on the side of repairing those relationships. I mean, listen, to, he gives two scenarios. Scenario one. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and then remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Those words are powerful. First go and be reconciled to them. First go and be reconciled to them. Just a little word picture. Jesus is teaching this to his disciples who are in Galilee, over a hundred kilometers away from the Jerusalem temple. Once or twice a year, the devoted uh, Jewish person would take a pilgrimage down to, uh, to Jerusalem, go to the temple, and they would offer the, the goat, the sacrifice. 
So Jesus is saying, here you are, you've done a hundred kilometer walk, you know, got feet on the goat at the altar, and then suddenly you remember that your neighbor and you have got, uh, you know, you're crossways with each other. Jesus quickly says, leap feet over there, run home, come back. It's not a convenient little thing. He's saying there is something more important than ritual faithfulness. He's saying that your relationship with me is entwined with the way that you treat people around you. Yes. And, and notice, it's not just you that, it's not that that person's hurt you and you need to feel out with You remember that that person feels hurt by you. You cherish the relationship so much that you go, oh my goodness, I, I think I came across wrong. Or maybe I did legitimately do something wrong. I need to try go to this person because I cherish this relationship. Because I want to protect this relationship. Because I want to restore this relationship. The Apostle Paul says, be at peace with everyone as far as it depends on you. Yeah. Yeah. That's the first scenario. And this is so important. This is a priority. Making broken relationships right. Protecting and cherishing the relationships you have. Then Jesus gives a second scenario. He says this. Settle matters, settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. So somebody's suing you. And both of you are walking to court and it turns out because you live in the same part of town. You're on the same road and you're like, oh my gosh, we've got, you know, we've got to be at court in an hour. And we're on the road with a person. And he says, what you want to do is don't wait until you get to the court and then, you know, stand up for yourself. On the way there, see if you can sort it out with this person. And if you don't, that person's going to hand you over to the judge. The judge will hand you over to the officer. You may be thrown into prison. This is referring, by the way, to a debt prison, which is a foreign concept to us today. You debt to someone in the ancient world, and you can't pay them. You're thrown in debt prison until you can get a family member to come and pay that. And you can imagine how many people die in debt prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Jesus is saying that broken relationships, if you don't settle them quickly, tend to get worse and worse and worse. It's like there's a prison sentence on your life. Deal with it quickly. Keep short accounts. Don't let it fester. We put it on for too long. It gets worse as time goes on. By the time we talk about it, we're already bleeding out of our eyes. We should have just sat down and worked it out with the person. As Paul says in Romans 12, as far as it depends on you, try to live at peace with everyone. As far as it depends on you, try to live at peace with everyone. Think how different this is to our culture. Especially in a city, we master the art of disposing relationships because there's so many. Toss them out and find some, some new ones. I was reading the other day how, um, how people nowadays don't even know how to break up with a, you know, a dating partner. So you know, when, when I was dating, I, I was told, you know, you actually don't make a phone call. You've got to see the person face to face. And break up with them in an honorable way. Uh, nowadays, uh, then there came a point where, no, no, you can at least maybe just break up with a WhatsApp. Nowadays, the more common thing you break up by ghosting the person you're going after. They have to figure out after a few days that it's over. <laughs> what we're seeing is increasing relational immaturity, an inability to treat people honorably, an inability to make right what's broken. So here we've got Jesus teaching us to reconcile. 
This is the way of Jesus. Reconciliation is part of the way of Jesus. So Jesus teaches us reconciliation, but also love that Jesus practices reconciliation. More than that, Jesus empowers us to reconcile. Think about Jesus practicing reconciliation. For example, Jews and Samaritans in the time of Jesus were ideologically and religiously opposed. There was, they were mutually contemptuous of each other. And yet I love in John chapter 4 how Jesus finds a Samaritan woman and treats her with such kindness and she can't understand it. As he treats this woman with dignity and enables her to receive his ministry, overcoming her own contempt towards him as, as a Jewish man. And in our love for admission to people outside of our social group, or maybe outside of our view on things, we learn from Jesus that we may need to cross all kinds of barriers. Jesus crosses cultural, religious, traditional, gender, and reputational barriers. And he does all of this for love's sake. When I think of the cross, I think about the vertical beam and the horizontal beam. The vertical beam is, is the part of the cross that spans the difference between fallen humanity and our holy God. It re represents our being reunited with God by Jesus' redeeming sacrifice. See, our personal and our humanity-wide failures may have driven a wedge between us and God. But when Jesus breathed his loss on that wooden Roman rack, he somehow took the punishment for our moral failures upon himself. And he transformed this dividing wedge into a connecting bridge. Reconciliation. Jesus practices reconciliation. The cross is God's attempt to reconcile with his strange alienated people who've fallen away from him. So Jesus practices and he empowers us to reconcile. The vertical beam is our reconciliation with God. The horizontal beam speaks about how the cross empowers our our reconciliation with each other. See, it's the horizontal beam that deals with the way that our moral failures drive a wedge between us and each other. All the ways that racism and sexism, prejudice, selfishness, lying, dishonoring, belittling, avenging, gossip, flattery, war, injustice, adultery and abuse have torn us apart from each other. As Jesus' body bled dry, somehow He reunited us to each other by helping us to heal and by restoring ruptured relationships. It's not our wounding of each other, but our wounding of the man Jesus that turns out to be the last word on all the wrangling and the wars that have divided individuals and groups and tribes and nations from each other. You see, it may feel momentarily good to thrill in our moral superiority over the group or the view that we're challenging, especially when we believe that they have done us wrong, but much better then cold self-righteousness is to remember Jesus on the cross praying, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. And in that bloody moment, Jesus treats with kindness people who are acting despicably towards Him. And yet it is this love, this will for good, that is precisely why Jesus is later able to win so many of those same people to Himself. Having been swept into God's love by the cross, surely we can also learn to love our enemies until we have... We don't have any enemies, only neighbors. The cross empowers reconciliation. And then the last part of my message, I just want to get as practical as I can. 
I would love, well, no, I don't want to use up too much time, so what I've done is I actually had a lot more to say, and I've created a little uh, PDF which will be sent in the, um, the newsletter, this link, but if you wanted to take a pic, there it is, bit.ly forward slash 3N0AU3P, all small letters, B-I-T-L-Y forward slash 3N0AU3P, all small uh, case letters. And in there I speak about how when you actually do a temporary conciliation, there's one of four outcomes. You know, it doesn't always end fine and dandy. Sometimes there is still a parting of ways, but there's a parting of ways that maintains dignity. But how do we go about seeking reconciliation? And in there I speak about six practical steps that might help. First one is ventilate vertically. And what do you do with all the feelings of disappointment and hurt and rage that you feel towards the person who believe has wronged us? And here, if you have a relationship with God, you've got a head start because you can ventilate vertically. Take your wounds to God. Take the wounder to God in prayer. And what tends to happen is, one, you get things off your chest to the person that actually can carry those burdens. But often as you bring the wounded to God in prayer, it changes some of your attitude towards that person, uh, even as you pray. Yeah. See, as long as you imagine the person who wounded you is a monster, you will always be disempowered. <laughs> when you remember that they're actually a fellow human with all of their own issues and problems. Sure. It helps. And then you talk to the person, not to others. What do most of us do when we hurt? We talk to others about it. Now, there is a place where you can talk to someone to help you process your experience. But all too often, we talk to people to get them on our side. And that becomes so divisive. Jesus says, if someone hurts you, go and tell them. Work it out between the two of you. If he listens, you've saved the friendship. Matthew 18, verse 15. What's Jesus' counsel on average to a person who's been hurt by another person? Don't talk to others, go talk to the person. Talking to others and not the person about our gripes or griefs with someone is destructive to other relationships. It's better to limit the relational brokenness by strongly limiting our circle of conversation. Proverbs 26, fire goes out for lack of fuel, so tensions dissipate when gossip stops. And then number three, take the initiative to see the person. And Jesus says, don't wait for the person who's hurt to come to you. If you know somebody's angry with you or hurt by you, you go to them. And then attack the problem, not the person. <laughs> I mean, uh, uh, a little bit of pop psychology here. If you're talking to someone, don't use the words, you always. Mm-hmm. Rather say, you know, when you did this, and then be very specific, this is the impact it had on me, and then be very specific. And, and then try to own your hurt feelings, rather than saying, hey, when you did this, um, you made me feel. <laughs> Better is to say, when you did this, I felt. Listen more than you talk. Tone is everything. Body language is, is key. Uh, you know, a conciliatory, gentle, respectful approach is more like water that can quench the fire. As you listen to the person, you realize often we're so preoccupied with the way that we were hurt by that person. Usually there's you know two-way hurt that happens. And even as you hear that, there's a softness that comes in your heart towards the person. You also realize that that maybe they hurt you not for the reasons you thought. They were so often completely oblivious. Some of the the deepest wounds we experienced were done by somebody who woke up in the morning and they didn't pray, God, help me. They didn't think to themselves, how can I hurt this person this day? They hurt you by accident. 
even thinking about that just helps you. And then lastly, confess your part in the conflict. We live in a morally complicated world. Each of us contributes to the pain of others. If we only point out the other person's fault, they will be on the defensive. Instead of focusing on the wrong the other person did, we should focus on the wrong we did. Humbly apologize. Don't make excuses. Ask for forgiveness. As we do, it makes it easier for the other person to do the same. Can I ask us to stand up and the band back here? My goodness, the longer you live, the more you sit on the edge of your seat when you hear a message like this. Because the more complicated relationships you've had in your life, the more relationships you've seen that have come undone. And you wonder if you've just done it differently, maybe it could have been less devastating. We're going to worship Jesus some more, but we're also going to invite God's ministry to us. And firstly, I encourage you to receive God's gift of reconciliation. Maybe, maybe you're new to church and you've never been reconciled to God by faith in Jesus. Well, the vertical beam of the cross is the bridge that you walk across to a God whose arms are open wide. He wants to take you home. So Jesus, I need you. Thank you for dying on the cross to forgive my sins. And that's the bridge to relationship with your heavenly Father. Today, don't wait till you leave the meeting. Today, right where you are, say, Jesus, I'm trusting you. Be my Savior. Some of us need to take our wounders to Jesus. Even as I'm speaking, you can see the person's face. My goodness, that person's face has been in your mind so much. Sometimes for years. Take that wounded to Jesus. And then also take your wounds to Jesus. I mean, what do you do with all the pain? By his wounds we are healed. See, your pain has got somewhere to go. It's to the wounds of Jesus. There's somewhere your pain can go finally. You don't have to carry it the rest of your life. You can give it to the man who carried that suffering for you. See, Jesus on the cross doesn't only absorb our, our sins. He absorbs our sorrows. And then lastly, even as we worship ministry. I wonder if the Holy Spirit might whisper something to you about a way forward in a complicated relational situation. I just give you an angle. You know, you, you don't follow a formula. Every scenario and situation is unique. We need His wisdom. And He wants to give it to 